we can get to that and then we'll be all right. So, so we're just, yeah, we went out and rode bikes today. A lot of fun. Wow. Good for you. Good for you. Um, okay. Um, Francis, Francis, Francis. Mm. Francis, can you show an audio so we can see you? Sorry. Tess is here. Everybody's here. Dave and Kay, I know. Um, do we know who she is? Francis, can you turn on your... There's a camera image. Can you just... I'm sorry. I hope I'm not missing something here. Um, she might not have um, the internet or... I don't, can't remember. She didn't have a video or. Okay. 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 Things she was telling me she couldn't turn, yeah. turn it on. Um, <laughs> before we start, because I, I, bef oops, do we've already started the. Um, okay. Let's hold on. They've already had their Advent talk. They are. What's that? They had it last Sunday and Monday. Oh, oh, oh. Um, okay, that puts me in a dilemma. Hi, Maria. I know you're here, even if even if we don't have a camera on you, but I'm glad you're here. Francis, if, if you can turn your um, visual, your camera on, I would love to see, because right now I'm drawing a blank, and I'd like to know everybody who's here, but you may not have the technical. Um, I don't. Been through bandwidth for, sorry, yeah. Um, I, we've got a couple scheduling um, matters to deal with tonight. Um, um, in the Francis group, there's a priest coming in to offer a series of talks on Advent next Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday during class time. So we're going to cancel um, next week. So... Um, I want to ask you guys, um, I want to be careful of Advent time because I know it's it's a busy time for everybody. So shall we um, go ahead and plan to meet next week or cancel next week for Christmas? Um, I think the easiest way to ask this right now is can anybody not make it next week? And I don't want anybody to feel any pressure because we're in Christmas season. It's a it's a busy time for everybody. Um, we can put off. You know, once we stop, we're not going to pick up until the first week of January because Christmas and New Year's is a busy time. So um, let me just get some response from you guys. Will anybody have any trouble meeting next week? If anybody does, we'll cancel, and then we'll pick up on the on the fifth. Uh, I think it's the fifth of January. Or we can meet next week and then pick up. The first week of January. So you guys let me know. How, what do you want to do about this? Can anybody not make it next week? <coughs> Stephanie, we cannot go ahead without you because, <laughs> because we have no volume control without you. So. Um, I will not be available next week. Okay. And anybody else? Are, are, so... Um, is everybody okay if we cancel and then pick up? I think it's on the 5th, on the first week of, hold on, the first week of January? 
Yes, it's the fifth. It is the yeah the fifth. Yeah. Can um, is that all right with you guys? We'll just yeah absolutely yes yeah. Okay, yes. good. Okay, so next week we will not meet, and we will pick up again on the fifth. I'll send out an email to the whole group in case some people miss tonight and don't get the news. But at this point, we'll stop, okay? And we'll pick up with the Inferno after um, the New Year's and go ahead with Dante, stay with Dante. We're going to be with Dante for a while, okay? Okay, so that's good. Um, I wrote an email. Sorry. It's Melody. I'm looking at the chat, and Frances says she doesn't have enough bandwidth for the video, and she said you also can't seem to hear me. So she's here. She just can't. Okay, okay, convert. okay. Thanks for that. Um, some of you have asked for the study guide, and I, I, I'm trusting all of you got the email. I don't want to make it available to a general audience, so, and I'm asking for people to make donations for it, whatever, whatever you'd like. So if anybody's interested in having that study guide, okay. let, write me a note and I'll just include it in a response. I'll just attach it. And then you can make whatever donations you want. Um, here's my warning on it. I, I put this in a note, but let me say it in person. I was, um, I was always glad to give my classes a copy of the study guide because I think it helped. But I also know it's a temptation it's it's much easier to read the study guide because it talks about it. You don't have to deal with the story. Um, it's it. I think it's really really thorough. I think it's a good study guide. My concern is that it will keep you from reading wow. the Commedia. And if you had to make a choice, I'd say don't do anything with the study guide. Don't ask for it. Don't you know? If you want it, you've got it. There's nothing that can substitute for the Commedia. I mean, you know that. It, it's an extraordinary work. The knowledge is in the poetry. When you're reading something about a work, if it's Cliff Notes or a study guide, you're reading about it. It's a I'm saying this very seriously. It's a little bit like talking about the Eucharist. There's a big difference between talking about something and actually experiencing it. When you read the story, you're in a life. So it'd be like somebody participating in your own life or you participating in the life of somebody else. Um, the kind of knowledge we receive is different, and you know that's one of the reasons for doing this, this work that we're doing together, that it's to enlarge the treasury of our own experiences, not ideas in our heads. That as much as it comes down to talking about something when we discuss it, what we're talking about is an actual experience that we've had. That depends on reading it. So, you know my, I mean, and I know people have problems, your work, you've got family and you can't always read it. Um, but just be aware of that, um, you know, if you're gonna ask for the study guide. I'm, I'm sure I'm sounding like a marine drill instructor here, but anyway, you've got it, okay? Anybody who wants it, um, Send me, a, send me a note and I will just attach it in my response and then you can, you can either go to the online um, site or send a donation to Suzanne and me here at our address because I gave it in the email, okay? Okay, any, um, let's start. Any prayers for tonight? Um, 
Mike, I know I you, you, um, you've been concerned about your brother and Connie. I know your mother-in-law has, she's been on your heart for a long time. And David and Kay, I hope, um, I hope Paul's doing okay. But um, um, you guys say, any, any prayer requests tonight? A lot is going on. It's the, the holiday seasons seem to take a toll. So any prayer requests? I have one, Dr. Bob. Yeah, go ahead. Um, a young couple, Liz and Zach, uh, just lost their first baby yesterday. Oh. She had a miscarriage, so I'd like to pray for them. So what are their names? Liz and Zach. Liz and Zach? Yes. Where was the baby in the... She, they actually, uh, she gave birth to her, but she, I believe she was stillborn. Wow. So the, like, the baby's name was Charlotte. I'm so glad you asked her that prayer. I've, I've got a comment on it in a minute, but anybody else? Dr. Bob? Yes. Still, holy is still fighting for his life. So yeah. He's been in the hospital for over a month now. He's still in the ICU. Wow, wow, wow. A tough man. He's holding on. Yeah. Um, and for Cheryl, too, she's, a, she's a pretty much, you know, uh, she's really having a hard time. That's Paul's wife? Yes, yeah. Cheryl. Yeah, both of them were in our class before until he had a bypass and all that. Anybody else? I'm going to. I know it's a lot to pray for, but um, my daughter is getting married at the end of the month, so at Saint Elizabeth. So I would love prayers for her and her. Uh, What's her name, Connie? Samantha. 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 And her husband. Uh, it will be Chris. To be Chris. Yes. Okay. Amy. Yeah, I know, Doc. I've got. Um, Wow, wow, these burdens don't get lighter the older we get. God. And Thanksgiving for Jonathan. Yeah, wow. Wow. Let's start. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God. Um, I remember Mother Teresa saying um, how much she loved God and looked to Him and sometimes she wished um, that he didn't trust her as much as he did. Um, it was her way of saying that there's nothing she could do without him, but um, she was honored that he would have trusted her with the burdens that he gave her, but um, she was aware of her own weakness, you know, in receiving them. And, Sometimes I think a lot of us feel that way. We wish God wouldn't wouldn't trust us so much. Um, I feel grateful that we're doing this as a group because some of these burdens get spread out. So I'm glad that we can share them together. And I'm saying that really honestly. Sometimes my picture of purgatory is a group of us struggling together to lift the same load. So I'm grateful to be doing this with you guys. I'm glad that we're doing this together, that we're all on the same side. So, for the great honor, um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that you show us in these burdens, God, a lot of us would like to shake them off. They get heavy. Um, 
what a great honor that you show us to give us these things. Um, they're all a reminder of what you took on when you went to a cross, when you took on everything, everything. Um, I'm going to come to this in a minute when we start our class, but um, what a great honor that we could share these burdens um, with you. Um, it brings us deeper into you on your cross, so thank you for that. Um, thank you for the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass, your words to us. Um, it's Advent, you call us. The priest here, Father Sojin, used the expression over the weekend, for us to be aware of the fullness of those loves, the fullness of those loves that keep us from you, that sometimes we get so preoccupied with the world that we allow those things to get in the way of you and what it is you're asking of us. When, in whatever way that's true, it keeps us from fulfilling the loves that we have for those very things. It could be for our family, it could be for our work. Strengthen us, please, to keep you first so that we can bring your love to us to whatever it is we do love. The image for us this last week was John the Baptist in the desert eating locusts and honey. We are so rich in our lives sometimes too comfortable and we get spoiled and we don't give up things easily. So in this Advent, I ask for a special grace that all of us can keep John in our mind in the desert eating locust and honey to take seriously a fast from the world, to give up things, um, to turn to you, to go to the desert in our hearts, to the desert where we can meet you get past the things that we're too attached to in this world so that we can be with you and be strengthened in our efforts to bring you to our world. So that's my Advent prayer for all of us. I ask a special prayer for Paul and Cheryl. Stay with that man. Um, I don't know what to say, um, that he's holding on. He is a source of great encouragement. I mean, there's still hope for him. Um, but I say that knowing that oftentimes it's important for us to let somebody go. When he leaves this world, he's going to a better world. Hopefully that's our prayer. So while he's here, strengthen us to pull for him in you. And also be ready to let him go and um, help Cheryl find some strength um, in the ordeal her husband's going through. Um, I ask a special blessing for Liz and Zach. Um, Melody, they're the ones, right? That The couple, yeah. God. Years ago, our youngest, Jonathan, and his wife, Ems, lost a child. His name was Francis, and every year they celebrate his birthday. And when the kids were here, often when they were younger, and I'd tell them stories at night, I'd always tell them an adventure story. And very often, it's got a doobie. It's funny. Sorry. Sorry. I tell the kids stories, adventure stories, usually with kids their own name, and bring it to a pitch, you know, where something would be happening. And then suddenly this 
spirit from the other world. I made all the kids swords when they were younger. And suddenly, when the kids were in the midst of a problem and it looked like something was going to happen and there was a great danger, the stories would always take an adventure for them. If you could imagine me going nuts with all of my literature and bringing it to the kids. Suddenly, something would happen and Francis would appear with his sword and give a whack to his kids. And all of her grandchildren would just burst out in laughter. I mean, it'd just be, they, they couldn't stop themselves. It was just sheer hilarity for, you know, un uncontrollable hilarity for a minute. And the funny side of this is, years down the road, when they were home, they would, they, because they, we'd watch the kids a lot when they were younger. They loved the stories. They would, they would not go to bed without a story at some point. And, and when they were home and a little bit older, they asked Jonathan, their dad and our youngest, to tell them a story, and Jonathan would start to tell them a story, and all of them would <laughs> boo him and hoot and say, no, no, that's not the way you tell a story. <laughs> um, but Francis was a mainstay in all those stories. I mean, it almost could not tell a story without their brother coming into it so that they would not forget him. Um, sorry, this is a long story, but it goes to what you're praying for, Melody. Um, we, Suzanne mis had a miscarriage once, and we lost a, lost a child, but we never did what Emily did. I mean, annually, she would not forget that boy's birth. They would go to the graveyard, uh, you know, the little place where they kept the ashes, and so they kept his memory alive. Um, they're having, their, they're expecting their seventh right now, so, you know, but... But there's eight. There's this boy that they lost, and for them, it's very real. And I can imagine it had to be more real for Liz and Zach because she delivered it. So here's my prayer. Um, I wish I could talk with her. Um, this is going to be art for me. Let Elizabeth know deep in her heart that one day, sorry, God, sorry. Um, Elizabeth and Zach, let them know that one day they have a big surprise waiting for them in heaven. Our belief is that grace perfects nature. Whatever defects, whatever goes on here, we can be crippled. That is not going to carry over into heaven. Grace perfects nature. That's our belief. That's at the center of our belief. So let somebody, let them know from somebody, if, it, if it's you, Melody, let it be from you, that one day there will be this great surprise, that there will be this full-grown boy, girl. girl, that will show them a face that we, they will recognize as their own, and it will increase the joy they know in heaven. So, um, watch over them. Um, let them not just know a consolation. God, let them know a joy, a great gladness, even though they've lost a child. A great gladness in that lost. Um, Samantha and... Sorry, is that Connie... Yes. That's Chris. And Chris. Um, 
Marriages are hard today. <laughs> Christ, you know that better than anybody. Um, you're the groom. You call us as your bride to your church. Watch over that young couple, Samantha and Chris. Um, surround them with your grace. Let them um, experience your presence in their lives. And let your presence be a source of strength for them that everything they take on, because marriages are not easy. Um, we, we commit our lives and the love that we feel for each other to each other, but it's only the beginning of learning to take on sins. You know, and all the problems that come with it. So be with that young couple. Um, let them feel the promise of what they're doing, um, the great strength in what they're giving themselves to, and um, let them always find, let them know that there's always a help in you, whatever they're going to encounter. So uh, be present to their wedding. Let them um, experience somehow the fullness of your love for them. Um, when they do get married. Um, I'd like to offer or ask for special prayers for our daughter. We heard from her today, Amy, who had a checkup today and was sent to a heart specialist because apparently there's some concerns. Um, when we spoke to her, she was heavy. Um, it's not like her to be concerned, but I know she's troubled. So if you would all pray for our um, daughter Amy, that um, please please pray for her. That um, that if there's something there, um, there will be a treatment, or she'll be healed, or it will turn out to be nothing. And we offer thanksgiving for our youngest son Jonathan, who just received the news that a lump that had been removed from his lymph nodes is negative. It's benign. So we offer thanksgiving. There are all these burdens. Um, they keep us honest. So our prayer, each Mass, is to always be, always and everywhere, be thankful to you. Strengthen us, Lord, that no matter what goes on in our life, we are always grateful because we know that you're doing something to help bring some good out of all these struggles. So we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. I feel a little bit right now the way I do after dinners when Suzanne's been cooking and we say a prayer at table and she says, cut it short, would you? Cut it short, Robert. <laughs> okay. Um, for the poem tonight. Um, I'm going to... Dante, um, a couple of weeks ago, um, this young woman entered orders. Did, did I read a poem? Did I read one of her readings? Did I do it? She, she gave the reading, yeah. Um, when she entered orders and made her last vow, the readings she chose were from Isaiah. It's that reading from the Old Testament where Isaiah is talking about... Um, God sending his word, not in vain, that every word will come back. The gospel reading for that um, has to do with the same thing. So, here in Advent, here in Advent, um, I, should have, I should have chosen the, 
the um, passage where John focuses on John in the desert preparing the way for Christ, but let me do this instead. This is from John. It's um, from chapter 6, verses 40 to 69. It's the bread of life discourse in which Christ is meeting with the disciples and describing himself as the bread of life. He's going to give himself and ask everybody to participate in in him by taking him, his bread, his body and blood into him so that can, people can um, participate in his divine life. And I, um, I want to just preface this. You know, I think one of the problems with the world is they hear this stuff and think Catholics are nuts. I think it's because they think if anything miraculous happens to us, it would change who we are. It's like we'd turn into an avatar or a, um, a great flying beast or something unrecognizable because if a miracle takes place, it's like a tsunami or a volcano, a volcano erupting that this great thing is going to happen. We'd be transformed. But the strange thing is when we, when we participate in Christ's life and take something divine into us, we remain human. So of course we must be wrong. <laughs> we must be wrong to be, you know, to think that we're going to take this divine life and and be um, suddenly transformed. The great irony is is that the Eucharist reaffirms our human nature that God made us human. That's the great glory. We're not angels. We're not animals. We're humans. So in taking His Eucharist into us, we shouldn't expect to be changed except inwardly that somehow we become more of who God gave us to be than we would without him. And sometimes people don't see that. Um, That may be our fault. That may be their fault. I don't know. But it's the bread of life discourse. And when some people heard it, these were his disciples. When some of the disciples heard it, they, they ran off. It was too much because according to their beliefs, you could not drink the blood of animals. The idea that you would take the blood of a human being was blasphemous to them. So here's the center of our faith. It's the Eucharist when when Christ says, if you don't do this, you won't be participating in my life fully. Okay. Remember too, when you think about this discourse, that he was God and man, so that when most people looked at him, he was just an ordinary man. He was the son of a carpenter. So if a god was going to come down, why didn't he show himself as a god? You know, the clouds bursting, the sun brightening, the earth shaking. Here was a god walking around, and he, was, he looked just like any other human beings. So, of course, how could, how could he, he... There had to be something wrong with him to claim that he was a god. But everything he did showed he could do things that humans couldn't. He walked on water, he healed... He rose from the dead. So this discourse is at the center of our life. It's our belief that Christ offers us a share in his divine life. And um, we can become who we've been given to be by participating in it. Um, and, And you know from the Divine Comedy it means a greater joy, a greater promise, also greater burdens, greater sorrows, greater crosses. So... This is um, from John. 
Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the desert, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. The Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Unlike your ancestors who ate and still died, whoever eats this bread will live forever. These things he said while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Then many of his disciples who were listening said, This saying is hard. Who can accept it? Since Jesus knew that his disciples were murmuring about it, he said to them, Does this shock you? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life, while the flesh is of no avail. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning the ones who would not believe and the one who would betray him. And he said, For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted by my Father. As a result, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer accompanied him. These are all disciples. They were all disciples. So they went back to the way they were living instead of struggling to enter this new life that he offered. Then Jesus said to the twelve, <laughs> you know how many people are in our class tonight? Twelve. There are twelve. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to leave? Simon Peter answered him, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have, become, we have come to believe in you and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. So in this Advent season, um, um, help us to keep in mind at one end, John, who went to the desert, help all of us to enter into the desert, genuinely, to find you there. Um, You went into the desert for 40 days. Um, Help us to go there, even with all of our weaknesses. And where our weaknesses rise up, help us to get beyond them, to pick up again and keep going. Um, So John's at one end and you're at the other um, offering your life. Um, So help us to hold on to that at at Advent. That's our reading and our prayer for tonight. So let me stop. Okay. um, um, Any any questions about
last week. I, 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 what I'd like to do is just try to do a quick review and then get on for the next eight cantos. But any questions about what we did last week? Or where we are in Advent? Or By the way, I want it because I'm not sure I'll remember to say this. You know, we're, we're not going to meet until the New Year, so we're going... I feel a little bit awkward because everybody's going to be stuck in the middle of hell <laughs> going into Christmas. You know, we're going to be on Canto 16 and you guys are, we're all going into Christmas and it's a celebration of Christ's birth and here we are stuck in Dante's The Inferno. I, I want to say this just to, to take the edge off that irony. Um, everything that we're reading in The Inferno is exactly what Christ came into the world to answer. So the positive side of this, and I'm saying this genuinely, I don't know that we can sufficiently feel the gratitude that we should if we don't look at the depths of this because we won't fully appreciate exactly what he took on. But this is exactly it. He, he took on the worst of all of us, all of us, if, if, if I mean, I hope there's, everybody's seen this, that when we enter into the inferno with Dante and Virgil, we're looking at the, those same sins in ourselves. That's what we're seeing. Um, lots of us may not want to see those things in ourselves, but they're there. So the inferno is about descending into the depths of our souls to see those. I hope everybody knows emotions are obscure. We, we don't see emotions very well. Man's obscure to himself. We just don't see ourselves. I think women are a little bit better at it than men because women are more likely to express their emotions than men. But I, even then, I'm not sure that they always see the nature of them. They may feel them, but seeing them is another thing. Dante's taking us into the depths of that obscurity. He's showing us the things we don't see very well. It's all those things that Christ came to answer. So the positive side of this is even even if we're reading this over, you know, Advent, it should help us appreciate exactly what he he came to put away. So keep that positive thought with you if you're if you're going to continue reading the Inferno during Advent. Okay. Um. Okay. Quick. Any no. Any questions about last week, or I'll just do a quick review. Anybody want to have questions from last week? Okay, let, let me do as quick a review as I can. Some of the broad background stuff that's absolutely crucial for people to know. You know that the historical backdrop of, of the story is um, um, the war between the, um, the emperor and the pope. That war um, took the um, form of um, two groups that originated in Germany that were dedicated to, who identified themselves either by their attachments to the emperor or to the pope. Those battles get carried across all of Europe. All of Europe is engaged in these battles between church and state, everywhere. They get carried to Italy and they take the form of what's called the, the Gelfs and Ghibellines. The Ghibellines were the party that identified themselves with the, um, the emperor. They tended to be very aristocratic. They had landed interests to protect. 
Um, their history went back for centuries. The Guelphs were more democratic. Um, they were less vested in property interests and inheritance. Um, they were more middle class and they identified with the church, with the Pope. And those two parties went to war and killed each other. Um, the, the, those two factions went to war in Florence. The Guelphs destroyed um, Dante's party. The Guelphs exiled them for a time. They came back and continued the battles. So those battles rage on um, during the time that Dante's living. In fact, he himself was involved in them, killing people. You remember that the Guelphs break down into two parties, the white and the black, the black continued to identify with the Pope, but the white began to identify itself with a new kind of freedom. And it was out of that sense of freedom that a new understanding of political organizations came to be. All of this is really directly related to what happened when Aristotle is rediscovered in the West, because Aristotle disappeared from the West for virtually nine centuries. Western civilization, be, be, from the time of Christ's death through, let's say, the 14th century, or 13th century, was Platonic. St. Augustine was Platonic in his thinking. So was Bonaventure, who was, was um, Thomas's great adversary. They were all Platonic in their ways of thinking. But Aristotle is rediscovered largely through the um, Islamic world, and it radically changes the way people look at political systems. Plato's very negative. Plato looks down on the body. Plato, Plato's really, at the, I believe, at the heart of the Reformation thinkers. Calvin, Luther, all of them. Aristotle was more grounded in earthly realities than in the body. Aristotle's understanding of political life is that it's not punitive, the way it was for Plato. It was positive. That political systems were put into effect to help men achieve their potential. Man's innately good, reason's innately good, laws are meant to help man resist the bad things in him and become better. So these new communes came into existence, and it's during Dante's life that this new commune that was not owing its identity to the emperor or to the pope, it's a new kind of republic. It's called a burger republic. It's the model, the prototype of America. It's the commercial regime. So, in one sense, the Divine Comedy is one of the most powerful critiques of America that's ever been written, what, three and a half centuries before America came into existence because there's not a scene in the Divine Comedy that doesn't lay bare some aspect of this feud between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines and this new kind of city. So one of the great themes of the Divine Comedy is the city. You know that it's been one of our most important themes through all the work we've, from the time of Shakespeare, everything we've done. So the theme of um, the conflict between church and state, the emergence of this new kind of republic, are, are major backstories of the Divine Comedy. Another one is that, um, that we can't pick up the Divine Comedy without realizing how much Dante owes to his past. 
Virgil did something that had never been done before. What Virgil did was take Homer and integrate him fully into his work. You've all seen that now because you've read the Aeneid. There's not a scene in the Aeneid that doesn't integrate into itself something that took place in either the Iliad or the Odyssey, but radically change it. So Virgil made clear that for an epic poet to seriously do his work, he couldn't do it unless he took the past with him. So one of the tasks of the epic poet is to carry the past forward and redeem it as he goes. So as we read the Divine Comedy, we're going to be constantly made aware of the past. I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples in a minute. But the most important way in which that's true is that he takes Virgil as his guide. You know, this is what? This is 1,300 years after Virgil lived and Dante's choosing him to take him through the Inferno and the Purgatorio. So Dante's showing that we can't get along without the past, that it's important for us to learn with from the past and carry it forward, but changing it while we go. Um, Dante uses an allegorical method. There's not a scene that isn't multi-leveled. So whatever's going on on the surface always carries a deeper allegorical meaning. It's important for us to struggle to try to realize what that is. Another way of putting that is that no matter no matter what appears on the surface, whatever appears on the surface is expressing some deeper meaning. It's important for us to try to get to it. You know that the, the, um, the whole work is structured on Trinitarian principles. It's Dante's way of showing the Trinity is always with us. Always. Always. There's nothing that goes on that doesn't reflect the Trinity. Our God is not an isolated, solitary God. He's Trinitarian. So the Divine Comedy is, di is divided into three canticles, three songs, three canticles, three songs, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, the Perdiso. Each of the canticles is divided into three. In the Inferno, it's the incontinence, the violence, the fraud. You know, we'll see that division carry through. Um, the, the rhyme scheme is the Terza Rima. It's a three... It's a three-line stanza, forward-moving rhyme scheme. And that's interesting because it's static. It's there. It's the same. A-B-A, B-C-B. -B. It's always the terzarima, and yet it's always moving. It's always moving forward. It's one of the beauties, one of the beauty, the paradoxical beauties of the Divine Comedy is this terzarima. It's a stanza. It's the same. It's unchanging. It's three lines. And yet it's structured so it's always moving us forward. It's as if the life of the Trinity permeates everything. There's this harmony. It's always with it, with us, present. But some life-giving force is going on. So everything about the Divine Comedy is showing us the presence of God in our world. Hidden. Um, one last note on the image of the city. You know, we've talked about the city. It's one of the paradigms of the work that we've been doing. It, it focuses everything. In the Divine Comedy, Dante is going to constantly refer to the city as the flaming city, the burning city, the perverse city. Remember that Dante has stepped outside of his world. He's in final realities. He's dealing with... These are es eschatological. 
They're the final four things they have to do at the end of life. So he's looking at hell. The souls are there. They're fixed. He's looking at heaven. The souls are there fixed. In purgatorio, the souls are moving, but their destiny is fixed. There's no soul in purgatory who's not going to go to heaven. They're only there because they, you know, they chose God. So he's dealing with final things, but it's from that perspective that he can look back at the earthly city and see that the very nature of the earthly city is burning, perverse, corrupt. It's Egypt. It's something to be aware of. St. Augustine's line in Eliot captures it, burning, burning, I went to Carthage. If any of you have read St. Augustine's Confessions, you know that when he went to Carthage, when he was in his youth, that he became so overwhelmed with the energy, the life of the city, but it also trapped him. Um, it was where his lusts were most fulfilled. So he associates the city with this lustful activity, you know, these, the excessive desires turned towards the world. What we see when we look at Florence, which is the paradigm of America, is that the two motives that most define... In fact, let me ask you, when, when in your reading so far, if, if, you know, in so far if, if we think of, even though we're dealing with different cities, it could be Naples or Milan, or, but Florence is the central city, you know, it's the one that Dante's from, and it's the image of the, it's the paradigm for the commercial regime. If you had to do it, identify the two most important motives, the two central motives of Florence, the commercial regime, it's the regime in which people use their powers of resourcefulness to get ahead, to be entrepreneurial, you know, to be creative, resourceful, to create business. Well, in Dante, just this Dante, because it's not Shakespeare, it's you know, anybody else, it's Dante. What are the two dominant motives um, for people in the commercial regime as Dante presents it? What would you what would you say? Well, I would say that judging from uh, many of the characters we see in uh, in the Inferno, uh, greed and uh, power, hunger for power. Yeah, it's interesting because those are two. Remember, those are two of the ones that uh, Boethius identifies as, you know, worldly good, power money, wealth, you know. Anybody else? Looking at your nose, it's pride, pride and envy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Put, put, those, put those damn notes away, Connie. That's why that danger. Connie, flesh that out. Can make sense of that, can you? Make, I mean, in terms of the reading. Turn... Make, can, can you elaborate on that or flesh that out a little? Why would that be so in a commercial regime? Well, leave, my notes, leave my notes out of this. Because <laughs> everybody wants to be on top. I mean, you know, yeah. they just want, you know, they, they don't think about God and, and um, trying to help others and put others first. I mean, everybody just wants to be the top dog, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that clear to everybody? And it's not only, I mean, and it follows from, envy follows from that, because if you always want to be ahead and show how good you are and how you're better than somebody else, envy's going to follow, because if somebody gets something that you don't, you're going to envy it in your pride. So um, 
and and, and actually we're all we're at this point even looking forward to the purgatorio because if you if you look ahead to the purgatorio the sins that you know that people have got to take on as they ascend purgatory pride envy wrath i mean it'll go up but the two fundamental motives are pride and wrath and they lead to what michael was saying a minute ago because what they do is produce this greediness that in your pride you want more or in your envy if somebody gets something and you don't get you want more so both of them are very productive of greed they um, they give rise to a lot of greediness so so the image of the city is a major one I, I don't want to go through the um, I don't want to go through the, the first eight cantos in detail but but remember, we, we looked at the virtuous pagans, the lustful, the gluttonous, the avaricious, and the wrathful, the sullen and the wrathful. And it's at that point that we, we left off last week. The one thing that I just want to underscore here, remember, this is so important, this idea of the contrapasso. You all know what the contrapasso is, yeah? A contrapasso against the sin. Dante's amazing. Um, I, I, I can't put this I, strongly enough. I, I, I hope I do justice to it here. Every scene has a different contrapasso because every scene deals with a different sin. So lust is different from gluttony. Gluttony is different from avarice, from sullenness or anger. Wrath. Anger is not a sin. Wrath is. Um, and to show the nature of that sin, Dante creates an atmosphere to show its effects. So, for example, when we see Francesco and Paolo in the level of the lustful, they're tossed about by winds constantly or birds chattering. So it's very romantic, but it's unstable. Um, it's random. You know, things are going. The winds are blowing around. Um, in the gluttonous, the people are submerged in things. In the avaricious, remember, you've got two sides. The, the, those who want too much and those who are, who are too miserly, they're both going against each other, crushing each other. So it's, it's, it's a perfect image of the commercial regime. People constantly going at each other from a spirit of, of being um, miserly, wanting to hold on, or um, being wasteful. They keep clashing. They keep punishing each other. It's a perfect image of the commercial regime and these forces in competition. So every scene has its own contrapasso. I can't look at this stuff without thinking Doc Dante could have been a, an extraordinary doctor. And he got this from St. Thomas because St. Thomas is so clear. One of the ways in which we understand the cause of a thing is by looking at its effect. And one of the ways in which we understand a cause of a thing is, is vice versa. We can look at an effect to see the nature of its cause. So when, when doctors um, look at you and they see a symptom, they will infer a cause. They'll go back to it, right, and say, this is what's wrong. Dante's masterful, except he's not dealing with the body He's dealing with spiritual sins. So when he deals with lust, he, he's showing us what the effects of lust are. It's very nature by showing its effects. So the contrapasso is an external representation of an invisible 
internal state. It's absolutely crucial to get that. And so that's important to see in itself. The other thing that's important to see is this. Nobody put the sinners in hell. God didn't put anybody there. The important thing to see is when we look at the sinners in their actions, all their words, the atmosphere, if you look at their words, their words are expressive of their sin. The words reflect their sin, just like the contrapasso. What we see is this, is this is an affirmation of God's creation. He created people free to have free wills. This is what they chose. This is what they get. It's absolutely crucial to see that. Because in hell, they're getting exactly what they've wanted, and that moment is frozen in time. That's where they will be. There's no movement. There's no going on. In, in heaven, there's this ongoing joy. It, it multiplies. It doesn't stop. People think of heaven as being static. That's just not so. We'll see that when we get there. Hell is static. People are frozen. They're caught in this state. That's what they... That's what they wanted, that's what they chose, that's what they've got. So to see the contrapasso and their words is to see exactly where their wills are, what they've chosen. Now I can't say that strongly enough, it's so important to see that. Does everybody see that? Does anybody have any questions about that? I have a question. It's Melody. Big surprise. <laughs> Big surprise. Uh, okay, so I understand that the people chose to be in hell by by the various sins that they committed, except for those in limbo. And I'm specifically thinking about Virgil, because I understand that they didn't know God beforehand, but Virgil knows God. I mean, he knows about him. God sent him or allowed him to, to take Dante into hell. So why does Virgil have to stay there? Yeah. Anyway, we talked a little bit about this Melody, so I'm, I'm really glad for the question. Anybody, anybody want to um, respond to Melody's question? It's a really good question. For the longest time, just so you know, when we get to the end of the top of Purgatory, Virgil's going to turn around and go back. It, it was always a heartbreaking moment. I mean, my, my thought was yours. He led him this far. You know, he, he takes him to the borders of heaven for Virgil to go back seems so unfair because Dottie wouldn't have got there without him. But we talked a little bit about this. So anybody, anybody, can anybody offer a response to Melody's question? It's a really good question. It, it, has, it goes to the very nature of Virgil himself and what Dante, allegorically what Dante's dealing with. No? Mercy will let them know. Say go. Say Doc. What? Wait. Can you all hear Doc? Can you say it louder? I think for the people in limbo, through no fault of their own. Wait. By the way, there's a difference between limbo and the virtuous pagans. The virtuous pagans. Remember, limbo is is that there's this borderline people who were rejected by God and rejected by hell. The virtuous pagans are the first level. They're, they're pagans who are not evil. They're virtuous. 
it, it, I, I made such, you missed it, Melody, but I made a real point of underline, and I'm glad to go back to it because it's, it, to me, it's one of the most extraordinary things about the Divine Comedy, and lots of people will read past it, but it's not, it's the first, it's, the level of the virtuous pagans is um, a, a level, it's the beginning of actually hell, but, sorry, Doug, go ahead. God is not punishing them. Um, and I think that in the final judgment, um, they are great candidates for his mercy because they're not there through any fault of their own. It was just a matter of birth and timing. So I think God will probably show them mercy and let them into heaven. <laughs> Susan, Suzanne's nicer than Dante. She's being kinder yeah. than Dante. <laughs> well, Dante's not dealing with the last judgment. <laughs> but Suzanne is. Connie, did you have a response to that? Well, I just know that there's no crossing over. So if, if, if uh, unfortunately, if Virgil, you know, was condemned, um, and if he, was he in that first level, if I remember correctly? Yep. Like when he, yep. Yeah. Yep. So he at least is not suffering. I mean, right. it's not 100% dark uh, where he is. There is this little bitty flicker of light. Right. But I think I think that they, um, that hope of ever having that relationship with God is they just don't have it. You know, that's yeah. their sadness mostly. Yeah. Millie, I think that's, I mean, everything that, I mean, Suzanne is, um, I, I like her optimism. Yeah. I do. <laughs> um, oh God, what to do with you women? What to? Um, I mean, there's a great sympathy in what the two of you are expressing. Just, I want to, I want to, I want to try to be fair to what Dante's doing. I mean, that's my first purpose here. Not. Um, I think it's important to keep two things in mind. One is, and so along the lines of what Connie said, because Connie's. I think right on in the first circle. At an allegorical level, what Dante's showing is that natural goodness by itself is not enough to get to heaven. That's absolutely crucial. And the reason this is so important for me, and the reason I don't want to fudge with it, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to let sympathies get in the way, is that I know what happens when you do fudge with it. The Protestant is going to say man's corrupted. That the effects of the this is so crucial to our faith. It's why I don't want to. It's why I don't want to let this go with a light comment. The Protestant says, "Man, the effects of the fall were absolute. Man became depraved. So, so for them, man exists in a state of depravity." The Catholic says, "Absolutely not. We are not depraved. The effects of the fall were not complete. We were wounded." That God made us good, our essence is good, but natural goodness by itself cannot get us to heaven. Now, that you may say that's overly subtle, but I'm going to say it's not, because if you look at the attitude of the Protestant mind and the way it projects an evil on the world, a darkness on the world, that's very different from a Catholic who sees goodness everywhere, but knows that goodness by itself isn't sufficient to get to God. So if you look at the contrapasso in the first circle, it's exactly the way Connie described it. It's a, it's a meadow. There's this dim light in a castle. There's no punishments. The, the men are talking about philosophy and 
poetry and but there is no faith hope or charity because they don't know they don't know so all of them understood god none of them lacked an understanding virgil aristotle plato all had some sense of a god but that god was an abstraction in their philosophic minds they did not know a god who sent his son in his own divine nature into the world to take on a human form and die that that's another understanding of god that's peculiar to christianity and one of the things that's offered man in that offering that god makes of himself is faith hope and charity those are supernatural virtues not natural so all of those men in the level of the virtue of virtuous pagan would have known the four natural virtues temperance prudence um, temperance prudence um, endurance and justice those are the natural virtues none of them would have known the supernatural virtue the the cause for joy when man had no reason for joy that's absolutely crucial as good as those men are they would have had no reason to know a joy when reason told them there was no reason to have it so what dante's showing may seem very subtle but to me it's remarkable so hold that on one line on, on the one hand the other is when we get into the paradiso here's i mean this is going to go to you and suzanne you know in the in the comment the two of you are making when dante gets into the paradiso and he and he and he and beatrice are dealing with a level of um, justice the the divine eagle is going to appear to, to dante oh thanks Dante. and we're going to see because you we all know this from boethius for god there is no past or future we all know that i hope by now there's no past there's no future the divine eagle dante's going to talk about unbaptized children and and we're going to we're going to be given instances of god's mercy working in the past that that god can actually go back into the past and deal with it but i i mean you can already hear how strange that is because for god there is no past but that's another way of saying that that god's mercy is at work in the in the world in way in which humans don't see so i'm i'm trying to hold on to two things here one is vert allegorically at an allegorical level virgil's an image of reason of the very best that our natural powers can give us our natural good virtue he didn't choose homer he didn't choose aristotle he didn't choose plato he chose virgil a poet he's showing he had the greatest mind and he had the greatest heart the greatest sensibility remember from our reading of virgil all these scenes in which people were constantly having to lose things to suffer the losses you don't get that from homer you don't get that from plato you don't get it from aristotle you get it from a poet virgil had this exquisite sense of the cost of things that there was this human suffering everywhere so i think what dante at an allegorical level what he's doing is showing virgil is the very best that the natural man can come up with but that in itself is not sufficient to get to heaven man can't get to heaven without christ and his graces and that means the supernatural virtues 
faith, hope, and charity, and the joy, the elevated joy that they bring to man because they take him beyond what he can do with his own powers. Is that clear? Melody, does that answer your? Yes, it's very, very clear. Thank you. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Um, two, just two quick references back here, um, because they're examples of the way in which Dante uses the past in, in beyond what he does with Virgil. Um, you remember that the after the virtuous pagans, the, the first movement into sin really occurs with Francesco and Paola. And you remember that Francisco, you, I, I hope everybody remembers that we saw that what she did was blame God. That uh, remember that she and Paolo were making love. She's married and making love, and her husband comes in and discovers them and and kills them. Um, on page, this is page twenty twenty nine thirty. Remember, Dante comes into the level of lustful, and doves are flying about, and the wind is buffeting things. It's it's so appropriate that the doves are there because it's so romantic. Um, very little light. And Helen is there, Cleopatra, Achilles, Paris, all the great lovers from the ancient world are there because they were all defined by their passions. Page 29, as doves called by desire to return to their sweet nests, how romantic, with wings raised high and poised, float downward through the air, guided by will. You can almost watch a soap opera, you know, that particularly that women would be inclined to with all these emotions and and here you've got these touching things that are tender and and then suddenly Francisco and Paolo appear and you remember um, she says to Dante at the top of 30, if we could claim as friend the king of kings, we would beseech him that he grant you peace. You who show pity for our atrocious plight, whatever pleases you to hear or speak, we will hear. She will be only too glad to tell her story because she knows somebody's going to feel sorry for her. But it's in that moment that we get a sense of how subtle this movement into sin is because she's blaming God. If we could claim as friend of king of kings, but she can't. God's not friendly to her. He doesn't feel sorry for her. So what we're seeing is in this first movement into sin is the self-pity, the blaming of others, the not, the appealing to others' emotions. And you know the response of this on Dante's part is he faints, which shows how susceptible he is to the suffering of somebody else. Um, but the point I wanted to make here is this is no accident. This is, remember when we went through the Aeneid, we had all these scenes that kept taking us back to the Iliad or the Odyssey. That in the scenes between Dido and Aeneas, Virgil was playing on Odysseus's relationship with Circe and Calypso. Is that clear? Remember that for nine years of Odysseus' adventures, he's with Calypso for eight years and one year with Circe that one of the major episodes in Virgil's Aeneas is the affair between Dante and, I mean, Virgil and Aeneas and um, Dido. 
This is no accident that the first movement here has to do with these two lovers in this affair. So what we're seeing is Dante going back and taking something from Virgil and now giving it a completely different meaning the way Virgil did with Homer. Is that clear? We're watching these poets learn from each other. They learn to see things because of them, but they also take them and help them shine a light on their own age. So that we're learning from the past, but we're taking the past to shine a light on something in our own time. So what Dante does with Francesco and Paolo is very different from what Virgil did with Dido and Aeneas, and what Homer did with Odysseus and Calypso and Circe. So we're watching a poet carry the past forward in a way that throws light on our world now and deepens it, because now we're dealing, we're not with Dido and, and Aeneas in time, we're with Francesco and Paolo outside of time in hell. It's a fixed condition. This is, this is what lust leads to. This is its ultimate end. Hey, Dr. Bob. Yeah. I was telling my husband about this scene and, uh, you know, that they were in hell and, um, and his first question was, well, what happened to the husband? <laughs> like, well, where is he? <laughs> where did he go? <laughs> Remember, um, here in, it's on page 30, love led us straight to sudden death together. Cain awaits the one who quenched our lives. We're going to find her husband in the depths of hell. That's what I tell him. I said, he's probably lower in hell yep, than yep, what he is. Yep, yep. And it's really important to, to, to reinforce Connie's point. It, God, it's a, well, when we get to the top of purgatory, what we're going to see is the last highest level of purgatory is lust. Because it's the one that most resembles love. There are going to be all these souls struggling with lust at the top of purgatory because that that's the one that most approaches love. Here, it's no accident. The one that subtly leads us into hell is the one most like love. It looks most like it. It's why Dante passes out. The end of Canto 5, the one of the two spirits spoke these words, the other wept in such a way that pity blurred my senses. I swooned as though to die, and fell to hell's floor as a body dead falls. Dante's caught in pity. Um, I, I've said this before, it'll be one of the most important things to learn from this, that Dante's showing us is that one of the most dangerous emotions for humans is pity. It's one of the most natural. It's also one of the most dangerous. So, so um, we went through the lustful, the gluttonous, the avaricious, and the wrathful. And it was that point that we were approaching the gates of Dece, the city of hell itself. That's where we left off last week. But I just wanted to call to mind the importance of the Contrapasso and the descent. Now, one of the things that we're going to find from this point on is that the deeper we go into hell, the more we approach sins that are more spiritual in nature. Incontinence, the first third, the first level, the leopard. Remember the, the three divisions of hell correspond to those three animals that Dante met on the mountain, the leopard, the lion, and the she-wolf. The leopard is this 
upper half, it's incontinence. Incontinence means it's a weakness. These people are not in hell because they aggressively set out to do a sin. So they didn't overcome their weaknesses. If you look at the guardians, we're going to talk about this later. If you look at the guardians, there are all these ancient mon these ancient monsters like <coughs> Minos and <coughs> Cerberus and all these ancient monster figures. They're the guardians of each of the levels. As we go deeper and deeper to hell, the guardians are going to be demons. They're going to be fallen angels because we're we're approaching more demonic powers, more spiritual, greater levels of spiritual evil. Okay, so that's where we were. What I'd like to do is um, is look at the violent, the city of hell itself, and very quickly try to cover the 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 three levels of the middle circle, the violent. But any questions about the incontinent, the 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 upper levels of the upper third of the inferno? Is everybody? Any questions about that section before we go on to the... Remember, there's three sections, the incontinent, the violent, and the fraudulent. So last week we did the incontinent. Tonight I want to look at the violent. But any questions about the incontinent before we move on? I did have one on, on limbo. Um, so, I, so it was the people that were basically lukewarm. Is that... What, who there and, and of course the unbaptized babies. Yeah, Which uh, I, the church stays away. You know, they, I know they don't uh, really um, talk too much on that anymore. But yeah, yeah. Does I think every did it? I think the church came out a couple of years ago and and finally denied limbo as a right as a orthodox belief, a, um, a a piece of our theology. But here it was still accepted as a state and it corresponds to what you just said Connie that lukewarm they um, hell didn't want them because they didn't really commit evils the way aggressive or the incontinent or the other people do and heaven didn't want them because they they didn't care enough about either way they, they're like head sitters they just sit on fences not committing themselves one way or another right right Any any other questions or comments about the beauty of this? I mean, it's to me, it's a little bit scary. Scary is an understatement. Let me be. It's terrifying sometimes when I think about it. <laughs> you know, the beauty of it is that Dante is so he has such courage to show the nature of sin, I mean, what it really is. And I say that with a, with a particular kind of force because I think we live in a world that denies sin, so it's much harder for us to look at it. You know, we live in a world that wants to make everything okay, but denies sin, doesn't want to deal with it, to, to explain problems away. If we only had a socialistic form of government and all people were equal, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have problems. We'd, we'd, we'd create this heaven on earth. So we live in an age in which people don't look at sin. Dante's, to me, he's, he's got a tremendous amount of courage because he's showing what exactly sin looks like if you, 
if you look at it truthfully. Okay, let's let's get to the center of this. When Dante comes to the river Styx, remember he meets Filippo Argente on page um, um, 43. This is Canto 8. It's page 43. We've all got... Um, it's page 43. Remember, Filippo rose up in the boat and Dante and Virgil push him down. And it's at this point that um, when when Virgil pushes Filippo down, away get down there with the other cursed. And then he put his arms around my neck and kissed my face and said, Indignant soul, blessed is she in whose womb you were conceived. That's where we left last week because, and we I wanted to, leave off there because it, 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 it's a threshold point because the contrast between Dante's response here and Dante's response to Francesco is really important. Um, Virgil describes him as being indignant. When he sees Francesca's sin, he's so overwhelmed by pity that he faints. He, he feels so sorry for her. Here he's angry. He wants the soul away. So between the, the, the second level of the lustful and here, the wrathful and the sullen, marks a real change, an important change beginning to take place in Dante. That he's beginning to be in accord with God's way. Because remember, to feel pity for Francisco is in some ways to set himself against God. She's accusing God. He's not a friend. If he were, he'd feel sorry for her. The fact that he doesn't means he's not good. So she's blaming God, and to the extent that Dante feels sorry for her, he doesn't see it yet, but that in some sense sets him at odds with God. So at this point, a, a slight shift is taking place. They cross the sticks and they approach what is the boundary. So if you can picture hell now, the top third of which is the incontinence, the threshold marking the middle place, the violent, marks a boundary. It's hell proper. This boundary defines the nature of hell. What Dante's going to encounter is a wall, a walled city. So here's the image of the city again, except this is the anti-city. It's the city against God. Um, it's defended by demons, Medusa's on the top of it. And um, they've got to get through this city um, in order to finish their journey. So let's take a look um, on, um, on page 52. Um, page 46. They approach the city. Um, the circle that they're entering now is the circle of the heretics. And the heretics, in a sense, is a, is a level by itself for this reason. It's heresy that defines sin, because it's here where people actually turn against God um, that defines their actions. So this defines the city. This is the city proper. This is the center of hell. Um, at this point, we're we're getting closer to seeing the real nature of hell. It's people using their intellects 
to deny God and put something in his place. So on page 46, they're approaching the city. The color of the coward on my face when I realized my guide was turning back made him quickly change the color of his own. Dante and Virgil stand before the city. Virgil's looking nervous. Now this is the man who's come to rescue Dante. Remember, Virgil is bold. He's got a quest. Um, but surely we were meant to win this fight, he said, or else, but no such help was promised. Oh, how much time it's taking him to come. I saw too well how quickly he amended his opening words with what he added on. They were different from the ones he first pronounced. So Virgil's trying to put on a face. He's trying to act brave. But Dante sees it, that something's happening here that's making him more frightened. But nonetheless, his words made me afraid, perhaps because the phrase he left unfinished, I finished with worse meaning than he meant. Has, top of 47, has anyone before ever descended to this sad hollow? Virgil says that once before, Erichtho, a, a feminine figure, um, summoned Virgil. So this is really important. And, and Melody, it partly goes to your... This is reason. Oh, I'm so glad for this. I'm so glad for your question. Erecto summoned Virgil. He says at the top of 47, soon after I'd left my flesh, she went in through these walls. She summoned him, took him out. It shows that reason, as capable as it is, can be used by demonic powers. Right? If Matro, if just for a minute, if we picture angels far in excess of us intellectually, we think we're smart. We use our powers of reason. Very often the way we think we're, we use reason may be the means by which a demonic power uses us. So natural reason, we're seeing in this episode, is susceptible to be, being used by higher, higher intellectual powers. So Virgil is describing um, this event. And then Dante describes all the furies and the hellish kind of figures um, on the wall of this of this city, you know, on page 47 towards the body, where in no time at all and all at once sprang up three hellish furies stained with blood, their bodies and their gestures, those of females. It's interesting that they're feminine here. Their waists were bound in cords of wild green hydras, horned snakes, and little serpents grew as hair. So we're watching something that was naturally good in the beauty of a woman become demonic. These are feminine powers become hellish. At the top of 48, Medusa, come, we'll turn him into stone. They shouted all together, glaring down. How wrong we were to let off Theseus lightly. Now turn your back and cover up your eyes, for if the Gorgon comes to you, should see her, there would be no returning to the world. These were my master's words. He turned me around and did not trust my hands to hide my eyes. He placed his own on mine that kept them covered. Now here's goes to the point that I made earlier about the allegorical nature of the story. Oh, all of you whose intellects are sound, look now and see the meaning that is hidden beneath the veil that covers my strange verse. And then above the filthy swell approaching a blast of sound shot through with fear exploded like a shot of thunder. This angel approaches, I'll read on in the next page in a minute, but I want to stop here. What's the hidden meaning? What's going on at this moment that makes Virgil have to take Dante and physically turn him around? 
He doesn't trust him. Here's reason against, Melody. Here's reason again. Dante's there. Dante's a, a, a good man. Virgil's a good man in some ways, his teacher. Medusa's about to appear. Virgil physically takes, I mean, man, physically takes him and turns him. Why? What happens when you look at the Medusa? Now turn your back and cover your eyes, for if the Gorgon comes to you and should see her, there would be no returning to the world. What's going on right now at this moment? Why is this such a threatening moment to Dante? Why does Virgil do what he does? Well, whenever anyone looks at Medusa, don't they turn to stone? Yeah, now explain that. Now what does that mean? Um, what does that mean? Allegorically, here's the allegorical meaning. What does it mean? There's something less than human. Yeah, far worse than human, right? Yeah. Yeah. Far, far worse. Karen, did you have something? Lot's wife turned around, turned to stone. Say again? Lot's wife, when he was... Oh, uh, right, right. Explain it, though. Well, boy, that's... Wow. God. Let's leave Lot's wife, can we, for a second? This is because this is Virgil's worried that if Dante looks on the Medusa, sees her, he will be turned into stone. What does that mean? Turned to stone. I think when Lot's life, wife turned around, we've we've encountered this a number of times actually in our readings now. Um, she was turned into stone because she didn't want to let go of what she was being asked to give up. Her heart was still back, you know. She she didn't want to, she didn't want to give up what she was being asked to give up. I think the point of this, the allegorical meaning, is this, um, or at least is the way that I've always understood it. That if if any of us looks at evil directly, you know, when we're driving down the highway and we see an accident on the road, let's say an oncoming traffic, we're going two ways, and and on the oncoming way there's an accident how everybody will slow down and look at it and they won't be able to take their eyes off of it if they're and saint augustine actually talks about it this in the confession in the Colosseum. if you were if you were to walk down the street and you were to see a human body bloodied what is the likelihood that you would turn your eyes away wouldn't wouldn't it be hard for you not to stop and look and find it hard to take your glance off, particularly if it were violently treated blood. Or what Dante's showing is that there is this fascination in us for evil. And if we look at evil directly, I mean, actually see evil as it is, we will be overcome with despair. Despair means despair, the French, without hope, despair, without hope. Despair means without God. If we look at evil, seeing evil as it is would be overwhelming to us. It would be hard. It would be impossible for us to face it alone. Virgil's saying, you do not look at this. Picks him up and turns him around. So here's a good example of the allegorical level that something's going on on the surface 
that's actually showing us something significant beneath it. And it's important always to be asking what that deeper level is. So an angel comes to free them. This is really funny because Dante go, or Virgil goes to the wall and when he comes back, his head is down. And when Dante sees his head go down, he's even more frightened. Because he thinks Virgil's his guide. He's you know strong enough to get through these things. And here it is. Here's this thing again, melody about the limits of rationality. Virgil's not capable of dealing with this. On page 49, an angel comes um, from heaven, and when he comes, it just sends the demons scattering. I was in the middle of page 49. I was certain now that he was sent from heaven. I turned my guide, but he made a sign to keep my silence and how, how, um, and bow low to this one. An angel comes at the scorn that filled his holy presence. He reached the gate touched it with a wand, it opened without resistance from inside. Oh, heavens, outcast, despicable souls, he started, standing on the dreadful threshold. What insolence is this that bends to you? <coughs> the angel has nothing but scorn for these demons. They all scatter. So they scatter, and Dante and Virgil enter Dis. And it's here that they enter, in a sense evil as it is. The, the soul turned from God. When they enter, um, we get uh, reminders constantly of the nature of the city on page 52. O Tuscan walking through our flaming city, alive and speaking with such elegance. So as they pass through the gates, they encounter um, all these souls who are turned upside down in tombs because their life is upside down. They turned away from God and they're, in, they're, they're encased in flames in these tombs. The first one he meets is Fernada. On the bottom of page 52, what are you doing? Turn around and look at Fernada, who is risen. You will see him from the waist up standing straight. Top of 53, my guide with gentle push encouraged me to move among the sepulchers towards him. Be sure you choose your words with Choose your words with Carrie said. When I reached the margin of his tomb, he looked at me and half contemptuously asked, who would your ancestors be? He says the disgust of somebody who's high-born and aristocratic. And I who wanted only to oblige him held nothing back but told him everything. And this he lifted his brow a little and then said, bitter enemies of mine they were and of my ancestors and my party. Notice immediately the pride of family and ancestry. Farinata was among the Ghibellines. They were at war because they had these high-minded notions of their family and their inheritance and looked down on the Guelphs. Remember the Guelphs identified with the Pope. Um, bitter enemies of mine they were and of my ancestors and of my party. I had to scatter them not once but twice. So they defeated the Guelphs, sent them running twice. They were expelled, but only to return from everywhere, I said, not once, but twice. So the Gels came back to defeat them. And Art, your men, however, never answered. You can see the quarrel still going on. Farinata's trying to put Dante down. Dante's putting him down. Just then, just then, along that same tomb's open ledge, a shade appeared, but just down to his chin. This is Guido, 
Guido hears Dante and Fernanda talking, and Guido asks about his son, where, on page 53 at the bottom, where is my son? Dante says at the top of 54, or the bottom of 53, um, I do not come alone, I said. That one waiting over there guides me through here. The one perhaps your Guido held in scorn. Top of 54. What did you say he held? Is he not living? Because Dante uses the past tense. Now here's one of the interesting ways in which Dante shows the contrapasso in what people say. Fernanda gives a prophecy of what's going to happen to the Gelfs. And then um, Guido um, asks Dante a question that makes it obvious that he doesn't know if his son's alive or not. Bottom of 54. And now as I would have had your seed find peace, I said, I beg you to resolve a problem that has kept my reason tangled in a knot. If I've heard correctly, all of you can see ahead to what the future holds. Fernanda prophecies what's going to happen, and Guido asks about his son. Um, and, but talks about the future. But your knowledge of the present is not clear. Down here we see like those with faulty vision who only see, he said, what's at a distance. This much the Sovereign Lord grants us here. When events are close to us or when they happen, our mind is blank. And, where, um, and were it not for others, we would know nothing of your living state. Thus you can understand how all our knowledge will be completely dead at that time when the door to the future things is closed forever. Now, what is Dante learning here? Now remember, these are all heretics. Fernanda and Guido are among those heretics who believe, who are Epicureans. What did Epicureans believe? Do you guys remember? What's the Epicurean belief, philosophy? Live, drink, and, what is it, eat, drink, and be merry, or something right. of that sort. Um, explain that, Connie. What does that mean, eat, drink, and be merry? Oh, you, there's no consequences, basically, to what you do. Yeah. You just, whatever you want, and, you know, live a fun life, and, you know, don't worry about uh, eternal things, I guess. Right, right. They don't believe in the immortality of the soul. They do not believe in the immortality of the soul. And because they don't, they say, only the present matters, eat, drink, and be merry now, because there's no tomorrow. There is no afterlife. Now, why is this punishment appropriate for them, then? They can see the future, but they can't see the present. And then he says, thus you can understand how all our knowledge will be completely dead at that time when the door to future things is closed forever. Why is this... What... Why is this punishment appropriate for them? What is Dante showing us about the people in this part of hell? If, if you're, how to put this, if you're Epicurean and you say there's no tomorrow, that you only live for the present, then could there be a more fitting punishment than to take away the present? It's that which you believe in, because then it's a blank 
to you. You can't see because that's where you vested everything. And when end times come, and this is crucial because it permeates the whole of Dante's work. Remember, this is the final state. This is hell. But there's still something yet to come. At the resurrection of the bodies, at end times, we're going to learn this again and again in all Dante. At the end times, when Christ returns and things are completed, the bodies of men will be returned to them in a glorified state. That's our promise. We get that from Paul. We get that from Christ. When that moment comes, the, the pleasure for the saved will be enhanced. They will, need, they will know a greater happiness because their bodies will be returned to them. And the punishments of the hell will be intensified, those in hell. So if you're an Epicurean and you denied the present, you know, or, yeah, or, or live only for the present, eat, drink, and be merry now because there's no tomorrow, then the greatest punishment for you would be to, to have the present closed off. You can't see it. And when the final times come, when everything will be an ongoing present, you will see nothing. Everything will be taken away. So once again, the contrapasso is making clear the nature of our sins, what we do with our minds, what we do with our wills. Is that clear? So what he, I mean, it's, it's, he's like a doctor. He, he just keeps looking at the nature of a thing. We just say, oh, Epicurean said, eat, drink, you know, be happy. Dante's looking at that and seeing what the actual effects of it are. The implications of it being lived out. Okay, um, I want to, if I can, just quickly jump ahead. From here, Dante is going to go on to the level of the violent. And the violent are divided into... Thanks, Doc. Into three circle or three um, three circles actually. Bulges. Bulges. Three circles. Um, it's the violent against neighbors, the violent against um, self, and the violent against God. Okay. So remember the division of hell. The incontinent is made up of those who who committed their sins in weakness and didn't do something to overcome them. The next level is even worse because it shows people who are actually committed to sins, actively seeking to harm others. The third level will be the fraudulent, where everybody abuses, misuses their mind to commit their sins. But here we're dealing with the violent, <clears throat> the best. Remember the lion. So if you look at the three beasts, it was the leopard, the lion, and the she-wolf. This is the lion. This is the, this is the noble aspect of man. It's out of his nobility that he gets violent against somebody else. Okay? And the violent is divided into three groups. Those who committed violence against their neighbors, those against who committed violence against themselves, and those who committed violence against God. Is, is everybody clear on that? Anybody have any questions? So now we're we're looking at sin in its more aggressive form. As a matter of fact, let me let me put it this way. This is really I'm glad to glad to be doing this with you guys. If you look at the sins 
in the incontinent, most of the sinners are alone. In the level of the avaricious, you've got the two groups banging each other. It's the image of the, the economic aspect of the commercial regime that these two opposite factions serve to punish each other. But the sins are relatively passive. Lust is a passive. You know, Francisco and Francisco and Paolo are enveloped in their they're overcome by their passion for each other. Same thing with gluttony or avarice or wrath. Filippo is submerged in sullenness, you know. But here in the violence, we're watching sin take it's less passive, it's more aggressive. It actually begins to turn towards others. So we're watching sin move from a relatively passive state to one that's more aggressive. Okay? Okay? I want to look at Pierre de Vanya on pay, in Canto 13. Dante moves across the, the, the stream, the blood, because, well, here, um, in the first... Sorry, I don't want to go through it. When he passes through the, the first um, level of the violence, it's violence against neighbors, it's described as a stream of blood. And it shows figures who have been who've killed or murdered, so there's blood spilled everywhere. They find a, a, a shallow place where they can walk across the stream, so they pass the first level where he sees the violence against neighbors. And now in Canto 13, he comes to those who commit violence against themselves. And it's here that he meets Pierre de Vanya. So I want to look at this. Turn to page 6869. Dante's passing through this brush area, and he and um, he picks, he breaks off a branch, and suddenly the branch speaks to him. At the bottom of 68. Around me, walls, wails of grief were echoing, and I saw no one there to make up those sounds. He didn't, didn't see anybody. Bewildered by all this, had to stop. I think perhaps he thought I might be thinking that all the voices coming from those stumps belonged to people hiding there from us. So my teacher said, if you break off a little branch of any of these plants, what you are thinking now will break off too. <laughs> Funny. Then slowly raising up my hand a bit, I snapped the tiny branch of grant, a, a, a great thorn bush, and its trunk cried, Why are you tearing me? the top of 69, when its blood turned dark around the wound, it started saying more. Why do you rip me? Have you no sense of pity whatsoever? Men were we once, now we are changed to scrub, but even if we had been souls of serpents, your hand should have shown more pity than it did. Um, and what we learn is that that's, that's the soul of Pierre de Vanya, who has been transformed into a bush, and right now it's bleeding because Dante tore it off. Do you remember what this is from, from the Aeneid? You would have had to have read the Aeneid pretty closely to remember it, but any of you recall anything? This is the uh, parallel to that uh, deceased person that uh, Aeneas encounters when he's fleeing from Troy. Wow, um, Michael. That, uh, he, he was, he wasn't, he was in the, in the ground. Yeah. Wow, good for you, Mike. Really good for you, Michael. When when Aeneas was fleeing Troy, remember, he had to found a city. And right off the coast of Asia Minor there, 
they came to this little island and they were planning to settle. They set up an altar and, and Dante, or sorry, Virgil picked up a, or sorry, Aeneas picked up a, a branch and the branch screamed at him and said, why are you doing it? It began to bleed. It's the story of Polydorus. And Polydorus told him the story of a treachery that had taken place there before. And it was at that point that Aeneas knew he could not found his city there because it would be founded on the very treacheries that he was trying to flee. So here we've got, once again, Dante showing his debt to the past, particularly Virgil, because he's drawing on what Virgil did with Polydorus, except here it's Pierre d'Auvergne. Page 69. O wounded soul, my sage replied to him, if it did not only let himself believe what he had read in verses I once wrote, he never would have raised his hand against you, but the truth itself was so incredible, I urged him on to do the thing that grieves me. Virgil was the one who wrote about it in his own verses, but he had to ask Dante to do it because Dante would not have believed it if he told him, even though Dante read Virgil. He has to do it. But tell him who you were. He can make amends and will by making blood again your fame in the world above where his return is sure. And the trunk, so appealing are your lovely words, I must reply, be it not displeased if I am lured into a little conversation. I'm the one who held both the keys that fitted Frederick's heart. I turned them both locking and locking with such fitness that I that I let few into his confidence. I was so faithful to my glorious office. I lost not only sleep, but it itself. Um, at the top of 70, that courtesan who constantly surveyed Caesar's household with her adulterous eyes, mankind's undoing the special vice of courts. We're watching envy and greed operate at a court. That courtesan who constantly surveyed Caesar's household inflamed the hearts of everyone against me, and these inflamed, inflamed in turn Augustus, that is the leader, and my happy honors turned to sad laments. Um, he gave um, Frederick, his leader, advice, and everybody turned on him, and when he lost his favor in court, his response to it was to take his life. So here's an example of a man who put all of his trust in his accomplishments in the world, doing everything he could to please his leader, and it turned everybody against him, and when he lost favor in court, his, he responded by taking his life. My mind moved by scornful satisfaction, believing death would free me from all scorn, made me unjust to me, who was all just. Everything he did was in the name of justice. By these strange roots of my own tree, I swear to you, never once did I break faith with my Lord, who was so worthy of all honor. If one of you should go back to the world, Restore my memory of me, who here remain cut down by the flow of envy, that envy gave. Um, is everybody clear what his fault is? He, he made everything in the world far more important than God, so when he lost it all, there was nothing he could do in his own life except take his life. Um, my poet paused a while and said to me, Since he's silent now, don't lose your chance. Ask him if there's more you wish to know. Why don't you keep on questioning? And I said, and ask him for my part what I would ask, for I cannot, such pity chokes my heart. So even though Dante seemed to get past pity with Francesca, he's still susceptible to it because it's bleeding. It's a violent moment. And, and 
once again, it's a guy telling a tearful story, even though it's revealing this grotesque sin that um, he put so much store in the world that when he lost it, he couldn't do anything but take his life. Um, on, the, on 71, when they passed by um, Pierre, we were standing still attentive to the trunk, thinking perhaps it might have more to say when we were startled by a rushing sound, such as the hunter hears when he, from where he stands, first the boar and then all the chase approaching, the crash of hunting, dogs and branches smashing. Then to the left of us appeared two shapes, naked and gashed, fleeing with such rough speed, they tore away with them bushes, branches. Then one said, come on, quickly, death. He'd like to die. The other, who could not keep up the pace, screamed, Leno, your legs were not so nimble when you jousted in the tournament at Topo. And then from lack of breath, perhaps, he slipped into a, a bush and wrapped himself in thorns. <clears throat> Behind these two, the wood was overrun by packs of black bitches, ravenous and ready, like hunting dogs just broken from their chains. They sank their fangs into poor wretch who hid. They ripped him open piece by piece and then ran off with mouthfuls of his wretched limbs. Quickly, my escort took me by the hand and led me over to the bush that wept its vain laments from every bleeding sore. O Giacomo the St. Andrea said, What good was it for you to hide in me? What fault if high if you have led evil? So, let me stop. Pierre de Vanya took his life for the reason we just saw. Here Dante gives us examples of two men who are profligates. And they're being pursued by dogs because they're examples of people who more aggressively took, did something to take their lives away from them. So here we see different ways in which people actively take their lives, either by suicide or by doing things that are going to bring destruction on them, the profligates. Um, so, um, so we've gone from the level in which sins are committed against one's neighbors to sins committed against oneself or sins committed in such a way that it brings harm on oneself, profligates who waste their gifts, um, in a way that's destructive of themselves. In the next canto, Dante is going to see the sodomites and the users. The sodomites are homos homosexuals, um, and the users are people who exploit nature. Um, and I want to say, just looking ahead, when we get to the level of purgatory, at the level of lust, we're going to see homosexuals and heterosexuals in two different groups doing penance. So Dante's making it clear that homosexuality in itself is not, a, is not sufficient to damn a person. It's what a person does with it. But here he's showing us the sodomites and the um, users. I want to stop here just for a second. We've seen the sins against neighbors. We've seen the sins against self. Now we're going to see the sins against God and nature. Okay. We don't have time to look at the examples. I want to I want to pick up here when we when we get back together in January. But before we do, any thought why would Dante put the sodomites and the users here in this level 
set aside for sins against God or nature. Does anybody want to try to tackle that? If, if you've read it, you'll get some sense of it. We don't have time to go through it right now. I'll, I'll pick up here. This is where we'll start. But I'd like to leave with that question. Does anybody have a thought on that? Why? What Dante is showing us about how is sodomy and usury connected? Why are those two sins brought together at this level? Isn't sodomy a sin against natural law? Explain that. Who's the, who? Me, Karen. Um, God said a, a man and a woman should be married and have a union. And, he, and it also said that um, homosexuality was... What's the word he used? What was it? I can't remember the word he used. You're doing fine. <laughs> I can't remember the word used in scripture. It wasn't anathema. It was um, an abomination. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, laws of nature. Can you connect that um, with why sodomy and usury would? Can you connect that usury, Karen? And usury. Well, usury is. Um, exploiting nature, using it in the wrong way. Yep. And that is the same thing that's going on with sodomy. Yeah, yeah. Usury is trying to make money for you. Wait, hold on, hold on. Can you hear, can you hear Doc? Can you, hear, say, can you say it louder, Doc? Usury is trying to make money breed. It's supposed to be a man and a woman who breed. But usury is making money breed. And sodomy? Sodomy is barren. Did everybody hear that? Yeah. Did, did you all hear it? I heard it. Usury is... Can you speak it louder, Doc? Usury is making money breed. It's supposed to be a man and a woman who breed. But usury is trying to make money breed itself. So it's like sodomy. It's, it's actually barren. It's not producing what God intended. Because God intended nature to be fruitful of itself. At the end of this canto, Dante, and it's really going to be interesting because um, Dante and Virgil, actually they will go back to it, it was I think in canto 11. After they left the, the circle of the heretics, Dante and Virgil sit down for a moment and they outline the structure of hell. I'll, I'll, I'll pick up there when we meet. But when we get here, we'll see that it, at this point, um, in the sins committing violence, you know, open violence against neighbors or self or God or nature, you've got sinners who are committing these different sins, and the contrapasso for the sodomist and the userist will be slightly different, but they'll be in the same level. They're both um, acting against nature, and Dante will make the point that the nature was meant to be fecund. God created nature. And art, I'll go back to, these are Dante's lines, art is God's grandchild. God created nature. The art that we bring to what we do with nature should reflect nature and God. So our art should be 
fecund, creative, productive. And on the level of the sodomists and users, you've got people who are exploiting nature. The users are trying to make money breed. It's unnatural. And the sodomists are acting in a way that doesn't breed, that isn't fecund. So um, let me let me stop here because we, we're out of time. Any Any questions or thoughts about either the level of the incontinent or the violent? Did you ever think, did you ever think that you'd be looking this closely at the nature of sin? (laughs) You know, just to put this in perspective for a minute, go back to, because you guys are sort of amazing, not sort of, you guys are amazing. We've done the Iliad, we've done the Odyssey, we've done the Aeneid, we did some Shakespeare, but... um, but um, we did the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. Now we're doing Dante. I, I, I'm trusting that everybody will see the growth that's taking place from the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, that a tradition is unfolding and Dante is taking us to depths way beyond um, any that Homer or Virgil would have known. When we get to the... This is only the start of it. This is hell. When we get to the purgatory... Dante's going to be showing us this great glory to man in trying to answer his sins. You know, picking up the sins we're seeing here in hell. The only difference between hell and purgatory is that in hell, people want law. That's what they get. In purgatory, they want law and mercy. So they're actually atoning for the injustice that they committed, the breaking of the laws. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in purgatory. They all know they committed sins. They went against the law. The difference is they want mercy. So they're all picking up their sins and gladly redeeming them. So there's this action of redemption going on of the law. So in in hell, you've got people who wanted the law. That's what they've got. In purgatory, you've got people who are acknowledging that they broke a law. They're picking up the law and doing something to answer in the Paradiso, we're going to be in a world of forgiveness. All of its, the law and mercy tension is, has been transcended. We're in a world in which everybody's forgiven and in bliss. So right now we're looking at the depths of sin. What we're going to see in the Purgatorio is a depth of this great grace working to answer it. And in the Paradiso, we're going to look at a condition in which they've all been answered and people are in bliss. And yet in every one, we're going to see aspects of it that are so fine. I mean, who are looking at sin? If you can just project this forward and, and watch mercy acting in just as fine a way, you'll get some sense of what Dante is going to do in the Purgatorio. And he's going to do the same thing in the Paradiso with forgiveness. So this is just the beginning. So even if it seems a little bit gruesome, hold on. <laughs> just hold on. Because... There is this great glory answering it. Right now we're seeing what it is Christ came to answer. So um, let me stop there. Any, any questions or comments about any, any of what we've done so far? Melody, I know that that mind of yours is turning. Um, I'm just... Um 
thrilled to be reading this book because this oh, is the reason I wanted to take this class is because I was so excited about it. And you're right, the way he uh, mirrors the punishments with the sins is so incredible and it, it makes me sad. I know, I guess, pity is not a very good human emotion, so I need to get through that. But um, <laughs> it's just, and, and a little scary. Um, you know, so I'm I'm thrilled. I'm I'm really enjoying it. In fact, I'm almost done. I'm going to reread it again. Wow! In three weeks. Bless your soul. By the way, I just don't want to let this pass because I I get sort of hard on this because I'm pity's a natural emotion. We you 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 missed a couple of weeks, but Dante's a new kind of epic hero. You know, we talked about this. Um, if you look at Achilles and Odysseus and Aeneas. They're all extraordinary men, extraordinary men. They're, they're showing us how great man can be. Dante's showing us a new epic hero. He passes out constantly. He weeps. You know, Virgil's got to pick him up. Virgil's got to physically turn him around. So Dante's showing us at ourselves as we are in our weaknesses. Pity's a natural emotion. It's a good emotion. I mean, just, I want to be careful. But Dante's showing us it's an emotion we have to be on guard with, too. So I'm, I'm asking you, be careful of being a little bit too hard on yourself. Pity's, pity's uh, Dante's showing us it's a natural thing. It's a good thing. Pity is the feeling we feel when we identify with the sufferings of somebody else. The trouble is we can get caught there. And, and I'm saying that now because this is a major thing. For, we'll see it as we go along. Um, one, of, one of the changes that's taking place from the beginning of the Inferno to the end of the Inferno is Dante's learning that pity's a natural thing, but it's not the same thing as love. And he's got to be careful that he learns to order his emotions to a good that's in accord with God's will. And we're already seeing that pity sometimes puts people in situations when they don't know it, that they're actually putting themselves against God. I hope that's clear, because we're, we're in such subtleties now with these scenes, but, but what Dante's showing us to me is, I'm so glad for your language, Melody, I mean, because, I mean, this is, you know, I... I lived my life with Dante and I, you know, I mean, some of you have written about my teaching and I, all I can say, it's not me, it's Dante. I mean, you know, this is Dante's work. This is not me. It's when I think about what Homer and Virgil and Dante have given us and particularly Dante, God, this is the center of our church and it's not ideas, it's actual living experiences. So it just deepens you know, our efforts to live our faith. So, I, to me, it's just one of the most remarkable works that's ever been written. So I'm, I'm glad to hear your words about it. But be careful about, you know, beating yourself up in pity. It's, it's natural for us to feel pity. It's a sorrow. It can also overwhelm us and catch us. And I'm, I, my own response to this is if we look at the, at the I want to, I'm trying to stay as close to Dante as I can here. There's a cross you know, as, as, you, as, you, as you learn to suffer with somebody else, we either get caught there 
or in a cross we go on to a love which is not the same thing that's a harder thing because it means learning to let go of ourselves looking to the good of another if we don't know what that good is how can we do it what Dante is showing us is we remember it started with Dante wanting to go to God up at this mountain he gets beat back he can't do it he can't do it unless he goes down to see himself to see that remember his opening words I want to show you the good that came out of it having learned to see this stuff so the, the good that we want to do will be handicapped in any way in which we don't learn to see ourselves as we are that's the center of our church I think all of us know that because otherwise we wouldn't go to confession or you know we wouldn't take the Eucharist or anyway anyway I'm glad for your words any any other comments about what we're doing or what Dante's doing at this point it's so rich there's he's doing so much Tina what's on that mind of yours don't tell me there's nothing because I don't believe that uh, well I was just looking over some of my notes as you're talking um. I'm gonna make it a rule when we meet nobody can have the study guide nearby I know that I'm talking about the notes I wrote. <laughs> I, I I know I know that Dean. I was just thinking. I was just having fun with you guys. <laughs> um, I, I have a, a Christmas platter that says "Eat, Drink, and Be Merry." <laughs> 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 I'll be getting rid of. I'll be getting rid of that. <laughs> 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 oh God! Oh, please don't, Connie. Please, please don't. Just, just please don't get rid of it. Keep it, keep it there. But just say, remember why you do this. That we have that our souls are immoral. Just you know, add that, add that. Well, you know, listen. All of you guys have a merry Christmas. Um, bless you for the work that you're doing. Truly bless you. If we could all keep each other in our prayers, please, um, we'd be grateful for all of your prayers. Um, I'm grateful to you guys to watch the work that you do. Um, read if you can finish the inferno before christmas oh here's what i want to say and i forgot i'm glad when dante emerges from hell and steps on the shores of purgatory that is easter morning so remember it started on monday thursday when he starts to climb then he goes down into hell when he steps out from hell, when he gets up, when he <laughs> uses Satan to step up him to get to the shore, get out of hell, he steps on the shores of purgatory. That is Easter morning. It represents a risen life. So my encouragement to you, <laughs> read Inferno before Christmas and get to the opening lines of the purgatory. And, and just by way of a, a story, when we were in graduate school, when Suzanne and I were at UD and I was in the graduate program and I was reading Dante for the first, I was older. We had three kids when I did the early and the odd. I think I've told you all this. This all came late in my life and I was blown away by it all. It's just, I was an English major at Berkeley that you could be an English major and not have read the Iliad or the Odyssey or Aeneid or the Divine Comedy. There's no way you'd understand English literature without it. To me, it's just, it's just, one of the absurdities about higher education.
but we were UD, we were doing the Divine Comedy, and I, I, Suzanne knew how taken I was by it. I was just amazed by it. And she was reading it. When she finished the Inferno and started the Purgatorio, her words to me were, I'm so glad to be able to hope again. <laughs> so, so when you get to the opening of the Purgatorio, just know that it's Easter morning, it's a risen life, now Dante can begin to climb that mountain. So it's, it's what he was aiming for, but he had to learn to see himself. He had to have the humility to see himself as he was. And I hope it's clear by now, he could not do that himself. He had to have help. That's at the center of our faith. So you guys have, um, I'm saying this, more sincerely than I can, have a good Advent. Keep the desert, keep John, um, John the Baptist, the desert in your heart somewhere. Be glad for your world. Let us all be glad. Keep John. Have a good Advent. Let, let this be a good Advent for all of you. And I hope all of you have a really, really good Christmas, okay? And yeah, stay safe from the virus, and we'll we'll get back together again on the fifth of January. Okay, we'll pick up here. <laughs> we'll pick up with the violent. <laughs> okay, you all you all behave. Take care of yourselves. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Happy Advent. Thank you. Thank you. All of you, all of you. Jesus, the work we're doing.